to our sermon text for today, which is probably the shortest sermon text I've ever preached on, and that's Genesis chapter 1, 27, and it's actually chapter 1, verse 27b, because I will be uh, preaching on the last third of that verse. But uh, let me go ahead and read what I read last, well, two weeks ago, verses 26 through 27 for context. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for giving us your word, for giving us your direction for our lives, but also a revelation of yourself and of your, uh, the design that you have made, of your goodness and mercy and wisdom. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word today, uh, that we would be edified by it, and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I was going to say last week, I wasn't here last week, uh, but two weeks ago, I preached on uh, this passage and addressed the fact that man was created in the image of God and talked about what it means for mankind to be uh, the image of God. Talked about how uh, mankind uh, represents God in the earth and how he resembles God, and particularly in knowledge and righteousness, holiness, uh, dominion. Uh, that, that image was, was damaged by the fall. We're like a defaced image, but we're still an image. Just don't do our job very well. Uh, and in fact, had the uh, devilish characteristics instead, but that in Christ, that image is being restored. Today, I want to talk about another important aspect of God's creation of mankind, and that is that he made mankind male and female. And we find that in Genesis 1, 27. Male and female, he created them. And that's what I want to talk about today. Genesis uh, 1, 26 through verse 28, uh, this passage teaches that both men and women are made in the image of God. Uh, and both men and women are blessed and commissioned. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the what's called sometimes the creation mandate. We could call it the creation commission. Uh, it's a blessing upon man and woman and giving them what they are to do. Both men and women are uh, mankind. They are both made in the image of God. They both have this commission together. They have the same mission. They're designed for unity. Um, But even though they have these things in common, men and women are made differently so they can act in unity in complementary ways. Uh, In Genesis 1, we find a pattern that is uh, continuing here in verse 27. The pattern is that of uh, forming and filling the earth, and particularly part of that means making separations or making distinctions, uh, distinguishing one thing from another thing. Uh, we saw a separation of light and darkness, day and night, that God 
separated them, he named them, he identified them, he designed them, he gave them their purposes, uh, called one day and the other night. He separated the waters from the waters. It was a big blobby mass, and then he brought some waters up into the sky and the clouds and uh, have other waters on the, uh, the earth. Of course, they act in great unity, we know, right? Because the waters that are in the sky come back down to the ground, and even uh, people in the uh, days of Moses would have known that. They act in unity, but they are distinct, and God separated them. Uh, when they collapsed, it meant the flood, and everyone died, except for Noah and his family. Important division for our well-being. Then there was a the separation of waters from the land, and that one was pretty important, too. Right? It gave a space for us to live. He separated the dry land from the waters and um, made it so. The dry land he called earth, waters he called seas. Uh, he filled the land with vegetation, and the vegetation was divided. It was divided by kinds. We talked about how that doesn't really jive with evolution, the idea that the, there were certain kinds that were created uh, by God. Of course, some diversity within those kinds uh, being allowed uh, by God in wisdom. So everything is made very good. And we could talk about the animals as well and, and, and separated according to kinds. Um, everything is made very good, made in wisdom. And part of what that means, not only that it's not sinful, but it also means that it is well-designed, that it was made in wisdom. It fulfills the purposes for which God made it. He also made the, the sun and the moon, and he gave them their own realms to, to rule over the day and the night as he's giving more distinction to his creation. And they're well-designed for their purposes. Things are separated so that they fit together as distinct parts working in unity. Uh, they all have one goal. Each part of creation has the goal to glorify its maker. But each part does that in its own way. The sun does that in a different way than the moon does that. And they do it differently than the waters. And they do that differently than the animals. Each part does it in its own way according to its God-designed nature and its appointed office. One of the last separations that God makes is that of male and female. Now, it's actually not the last separation he'll make. He will uh, distinguish the seventh day, uh, one day in seven, from the other six by blessing it. We'll talk about that later. But one of the last uh, separations is that of male and female. Uh, he distinguishes the two. God makes them distinct and different, each designed to fulfill its own part so that they might correspond to each other and it, in unity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This uh, form that God gives the creation uh, by naming, distinguishing, appointing is called the creation order. Things were not uh, designed to, at the end of the six days, to be a chaos. No, that's kind of how things began, at least formless and void, but that's not the way he intended the world to be. He intended it to be an order, a system, a harmony. And so we have a creation order given to it by God. Some people call that natural law. You could quibble over the terms, but in one way or another, God gave the world a design in a way it was supposed to work. And things in the creation order are in harmony when they act according to God's design ingrained into their nature. Now, today I'm going to be drawing some material from a Sunday school series that I gave a little while back. Uh, which means that if you want more information, you can also find that on Sermon Audio. It's a, a series on uh, gender. 
Um, and give more details there. I'm also going to give more details about men and women when we come to Genesis 2. Genesis 1 talks more about how men and women are distinct and also what they have in common. Genesis 2 is going to talk more about how are they different, not just that, that they are different, but you know, how is the man and the woman distinct from each other by digging into more of the details of how they were uh, created and, and what they were created uh, for with respect to each other. But what I want to say today is that God made mankind as male and female, that this distinction is good, it's ingrained into your bodies, that you should affirm and live according to this design, and to deny or undermine this distinction is destructive and wrong. It's an assertion of uh, foolish and sinful autonomy. So this is a, a good distinction made by God that should be upheld and affirmed. And that needs to be said because there are challenges to God's order. Satan sought to undo the order that God has made. We don't live in the garden anymore. We live on this side of the fall, and we're reading this text from that position, looking back to the way we were designed, looking back to the way we were made and what we uh, long for. But Satan has done his work. He rebelled against God. He sought to destroy God's order. He sought to undermine as a beast going to the woman, who'd go to the man, and uh, to sin against God himself, and to unravel what God had made. He is the destroyer. He has been a murderer from the beginning, causing death, death to God's creation. He sought to introduce death through disorder, to watch the world burn. The collapse of this order is the undoing of creation, is death. And he has had many followers uh, over the centuries. Uh, Paganism has traditionally exalted Androgyny. Androgyny, the idea that we can kind of erase uh, the distinctions between men and women. Uh, paganism has been historically uh, committed to the idea that basically all, all things are generally one. There's not a clear creator-creature distinction. The gods are many. None of them are omnipotent and all-powerful. Uh, that distinct. It's more like we have a chain of being. Uh, you get more godlike on this end and less godlike on this end, but basically things are one kind of thing. There's no one outside the system who can define and to distinguish and to uh, create this order. Now, paganism usually has had to uphold gender distinctions between men and women for practical reasons, because they've been pre-industrial society, and you kind of have to have a division of labor, but usually in its ceremonies, in its religious um, perform- uh, ceremonies, it has exalted androgyny. It's the similar for those who are rich or for those who are rulers, for those messianic rulers that thought that they wanted to be God on earth, would often engage in perverse sexual practices to try to uh, get over this limitation of being either man or woman. And I'm not going to go into the details, but uh, there, there was an attempt to transcend creation and the limitations of what God has made. There's been a, a, a desire to uh, have a return to that fundamental unity, especially for rulers who have sought to become God. So the androgyny that we might see promoted today is not like new, is not a, a completely modern thing. 
Um, in fact, uh, one thing that's been connected with this is the idea of uh, universalism, the idea that kind of all things came from one, that the diversity we find today is, is kind of a, not, necessarily, not necessarily a good thing. Things have kind of gone all sorts of directions, and in the end, things are all going to come back to one. Uh, ancient Gnostic idea, but this universal belief has often preceded and been influ- influential in revolutions. These universal ideas, popular in France before the French Revolution, popular in Russia before the Russian Revolution. The denial of the doctrine of creation leads to a, a revolt against order, against distinctions, um, as seen as arbitrary assertions of power that need to be overcome, and all things brought back to one. All of this is strong in our present culture. Today, we have, um, in the culture at large, with an evolutionary background, uh, a denial of the creation-creature distinction, and even, uh, you know, anything uh, above material reality. And so, with that worldview in mind, uh, with the idea that we just evolved from different things, which eventually came from nothing, it's, it's a process of chance, and everything is in flux, everything is, is changing. And what is past as unchangeable truth, then, is really not. It's really just a social construct. It's something that groups have put together to try to live with, but it's arbitrary. It's, it's there to just maintain power, they would say. What is left is subjective experience and an individual choice in a sea of relativism and evolutionary flux, fluxation. So things are changing. There's really no purpose there to begin with. You have to create it for yourself. Um, if, if someone tells you, well, this is true, this is the way things are, they're just trying to tell you what to do. They're just trying to uh, maintain the current power structures um, because there is no unchanging truth. Things are just always evolving is the idea. In this way of thinking, you are left to define yourself. You're like that statue that's carving itself out of the rock. You are left to define yourself and to be true to yourself, to follow your heart, to be authentic, and that's where you can find meaning in life. That, of course, is not the Christian view. I'm saying that's the view that you'll encounter in the world today, whether in the university or on the TV screen. It's the waters we swim in. And who is anyone to tell you who you are? Uh, tradition, the created order, human authority, divine authority, they're all seen as just baseless impositions of power and dehumanizing assaults on the freedom of the individual. And so as part of this revolt against the system, the area of sexuality uh, has been a key area and, and weapon. One line of attack has been on the sexual restraints and restriction of sex to marriage. And part of it's been on masculinity and femininity as prescribed identities to live up to. They don't like anything that you have to live up to that you didn't choose yourself. Uh, Whether that's your national identity or whether that's your religious identity or your uh, sexual identity, they want you to choose it all for yourself. But the idea that it's prescribed and you have to live up to it and it's there whether you like it or not, no, they want to revolt against that. And so the debate has been, is, is sex an objective binary reality, male and female, or is it defined by each individual and their experience and the way they describe their experience and the way they make a choice about the way they want to live? Well, on this pos- 
d- debate, uh, God has a clear position. And we find it in Genesis 1, verse 27. God created mankind. He is the designer. We, we come not as sovereign individuals. I mean, look at a baby. They, they can't take care of themselves. We come as dependent beings. We are not the maker. God has designed us, and he tells us who we are. And he made us in his image, and he made us as male and female. God made mankind male and female. And so to use the terminology of the day, sex is binary. Uh, there's, there's two. And the sexes are designed by God in a complementary way. This design comes especially to expression in marriage, where we see that complementary design uh, especially, uh, especially expressed. And it results in fruitfulness often. Notice that this phrase that mankind was made male and female is followed immediately in the next verse by be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Man is made in the image of God and he's made as male and female so that he is the one now having dominion and filling the earth. Uh, That as God filled and formed the earth, so now man will be able to fill and form the earth as one made in his image and as a kind that is male and female, able to be fruitful and to do this work together. And so your identity as a man or as a woman is firmly rooted in biological reality. Um, The candidate for the Supreme Court wasn't that far off when she said, well, I'm not a biologist. Now, she should have been able to answer the question, what is a woman? But it does have something to do with biology. You are physically designed as male or female. Again, this is, should be pretty simple stuff, but it has to be said today. Genesis 2 through 3, in those two chapters, woman gets named woman. And what does she get named woman for? Because of her physical origin from man. Why does she get named Eve? Because she is the physical origin of the young. She is the mother of the living. Adam didn't ask Eve about her psychological experience or whether she felt like a woman. Uh, He named her woman. A person's identity as a man or as a woman is firmly linked to the design of his or her body. Uh, Physical anomalies and psychological conditions don't nullify that created link. Uh, A woman is an adult human female. A female denotes the sex that can bear offspring or produce eggs. Obviously, um, uh, depending on whether you're a mammal or etc. But uh, that is the definition in, you'll find in an old dictionary or a new dictionary, and it's that usage that we find in the Bible. So masculinity, femininity, they're firmly rooted in biological reality, and the complementary design you'll find even in the DNA. And it's a good and wise distinction created by God. Like the other distinctions God made, it is both glorious and practically useful. Think of the distinctions that God made between, you know, the, the sun and the moon, the distinctions he made between the land and the waters. They're both beautiful to have that variety in creation. It's a glorious, good thing. It's also really practical. It's also very useful. It's very uh, good. Mankind is better off as male and female, and it's more marvelous, too. In the home, in the church, in society, 
men and women contribute to its well-being and its glory according to their design as men and women. God made this distinction. It's good. It's glorious. Not only did he make the distinction between man and woman, creating you as a man or a woman, but you also have a responsibility to affirm and conform to that reality. That's why I read Deuteronomy 22.5 for our Old Testament reading. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Not only did he make the distinction, but you should also live up to it now. That's a case law. A case law means it, it gives you a particular case, and you're supposed to derive principles from it. It's not only about clothing, although it is about clothing, uh, but it's about more than clothing, too. Um, the principle is that women should live and present themselves as women. Men should live and present themselves as men. And using clothing here is the case. Um, one thing it does teach us is that that distinction should be incorporated into your clothing. And that's a visible way you affirm your distinction as a man or as a woman. And when I preach on Genesis 2, I'm going to explain more broadly what it means to live as a man or woman. Uh, I want to take just a moment, though, while we're here, uh, to consider how it's important to affirm this by the way you clothe yourself, the way you present yourself to others, especially because of the day that we live in, which is uh, often uh, not only trying to transgress the two, mixing man and woman, but also just generally playing down the distinction in an androgynous way. Clothing is significant because um, it communicates. It, it's how we choose to present ourselves to others. And one thing that it does is identifies ourselves as male or female. Uh, some of the symbols that we used to present ourselves are not going to change from culture to culture. Like, I don't think there's a culture where beards are feminine. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's certain things that, that don't change from culture to culture, and there's some things that do uh, change from culture to culture. Um, you know, a kilt is very manly in Scotland, but, uh, you know, skirts generally are, are not uh, manual, masculine. So, you know, there's some cultural uh, understanding that gives you the ability to understand the language being used, the visual language. Um, and so some are culturally relative, but that doesn't mean if it's culturally relative, this is where our modern culture usually goes. If it's culturally relative, therefore it's meaningless and I don't have to pay attention to it and I can break the system. Um, but if you try using that way of thinking with language, like the words we're using, uh, that's culturally relative too. <laughs> Um, but it's very meaningful because of the uh, tradition that surrounds it. Um, And so it still has meaning uh, and still communicates. A tradition and custom is good and helpful. Uh, It's not good to be overthrowing it all the time or else it gets very difficult to communicate. It might take wisdom and situational awareness to use, um, but in, especially in a culture where the very concepts of modesty and propriety are under attack. Uh, but these are good things for us to appreciate and to use uh, to the extent that we have it in our culture to affirm uh, God's order and God's design. Like I said, the, the, the uh, 
desire to define oneself apart from God's created order is not new. The people of God have lived among sexually rebellious people for much of its history. In the early church, they were in the midst of a Greco-Roman empire that was very pagan, and the culture uh, was also uh, very contemptuous towards God's order for sexuality, not only um, in sexually immoral practices, but also effeminate practices for men. Um, for example, uh, Clement of Alexandria was an Egyptian church father of the second century, a very early church father, and his writings are really interesting. He uh, strongly condemned not only sexual sins, but also effeminate men who sought to appear smooth and feminine by plucking out all their hairs and wearing jewelry and soft clothing. He said, luxury has deranged all things. It has disgraced man. Men play the part of women and women that of men, contrary to nature. O miserable spectacle, horrible conduct. Now, let me just give you a little longer quote here to give you an idea of what he was encountering and what he said in response. He says, For God wished women to be smooth and rejoice in their locks alone, growing spontaneously as a horse in his mane. But he has adorned man like the lions with a beard and endowed him as an attribute of manhood with shaggy breasts, a sign of the strength and rule. Whatever smoothness and softness was in him, he abstracted from his side when he formed the woman Eve, physically receptive, his partner in parentage, his help in household management. While he for he had parted with all smoothness, remained a man, and showed himself a man. Rather, he goes on to say, we ought not to call such men men, but lewd wretches and effeminate, whose voices are feeble, whose clothes are womanish, both in feel and die. And such creatures are manifestly shown to be what they are from their external appearance, their clothes, shoes, form, walk, cut of hair, look. Like I said, his writings are pretty interesting. Um, as he goes on to attack full front the culture of his day. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for men to shave. Um, just thought I'd, I'd clarify that. But notice how Clement, um, he gets close to saying that, but he points to not just one thing, but the overall appearance of how they were presenting themselves. Was it affirming God's design, or were men being uh, effeminate and uh, presenting themselves contrary to the way God had designed them to be. The point is that women should live and present themselves as women, and men should live and present themselves as men. God made mankind male and female. This is a good and glorious distinction created by God, and it's to be affirmed by us living in conformity with this reality. This creation order, this natural law is contrary to we use a bunch of big words here, androgyny, egalitarianism, queerness, homosexuality, transgenderism, effeminacy, irresponsibility, and the hatred of either sex. Now, listing all those things, we know that our world is in need of redemption. We have the created order. We have a rebellion against it. Mankind is in need of redemption. And there's various ways that this design is um, corrupted by sin. Let me more uh, just go through four of these real quickly. First of all, masculinity and femininity, which are good, have themselves been twisted and redirected by sin. For example, man's strength and aggression, which was designed to work and to keep the garden, is used instead to oppress or exploit or rob. 
and both men and women can take their respective strengths and use them to evil ends. That's the first way. Secondly, there is a rebellion of men and women against their natures. Not only do they redirect their strengths to unlawful ends, but they can act plainly contrary to their design. Men who are given strength to protect and provide become uh, lazy and soft and abdicate their responsibilities uh, to lead or to govern, fiddling while Rome burns. Women who are given a unique ability to nurture their young can yet prove cruel and heartless to them, even killing the unborn. These are sins contrary to their nature. Third, there's an enmity and hostility between men and women. They blame each other. They're bitter against each other, hating and being hated by one another. There are men who despise and mistreat women. There are women who despise and mistreat men. The image of God is not respected in the other. Sometimes masculinity and femininity get blamed for the sinful perversions that have hijacked them. And there is hostility between men and women. And then fourth, there is a rebellion against the sexual distinction itself. The idea that these two are different. Since the distinction between men and women often is an occasion of conflict in fallen humanity, uh, some want to solve it by getting rid of the distinction. Others might be motivated to just transcend their createdness to avoid any prescribed identity. But one way or another, people rise up against this distinction and promote what I called, again, androgyny. Especially in our day, people seek to leverage the powers of science to overcome nature, to free humanity from this distinction, and to make man and woman effectively interchangeable. At least that's their goal. Consider yourself. Do you in every way live up in accord with God's design for you, fulfilling your responsibilities, observing his law, Do you use all the gifts and abilities God intended for his glory as a man or as a woman? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Perhaps not all have sinned in exactly the same way, but all are in need of redemption. God has made us good and upright, and we have sought out every man and woman his own way. And so finally I want to end on a note of redemption that there is a provision of redemption for men and women. Redemption is found in Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, humanity is lost in a labyrinth of confused rebellion, but that's not the case with him. Apart from Christ, humanity wars against its generous creator. Sinful, suffering, doomed to death, but that's not the case with Christ. In Christ, you are forgiven and reconciled with God. Through faith in Christ, men and women become co-heirs of grace, fellow members of the household of God. They were one in creation with one mission, one identity, glorifying God together. So in redemption, they are co-heirs of grace, members of the body of Christ, and have that same mission again to glorify God. In Christ, you are all restored to live in accordance with your created design as the image of God, as, male and women, as men and women. 
Redemption in Christ does not destroy nature, but restores and perfects it. You can find that quote from, like, every church father and his theologian, you know, throughout the centuries, variations on that theme, and it's an important point to make. Redemption in Christ does not destroy nature, but restores it and perfects it, glorifies it. We do not transcend our humanity, uh, abolish our sexual distinctions, but rather we are restored. Uh, Some err in this way, thinking that we are now freed from these created distinctions. But the problem wasn't in God's creation. We were created very good. That's not where the problem was. The problem was in our rebellion. And so salvation addresses that. The unity and distinctiveness, both of them, of man and woman is restored, purified, and perfected in Christ. Now, didn't Paul say in Galatians there's no male and female in Christ? That would be the the objection. Don't we get to transcend this distinction now in Christ? You don't want to take that too literally, I, I would say. And he explains what he means by saying, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In that respect, there is no distinction between male and female. You are both equally members of Christ and heirs of salvation through faith, united as one body of Christ. Uh, But the same Paul who wrote that also makes it pretty plain that men and women in Christ do not lose their distinctive natures and identities. He's the one who talks about husbands and wives and men and women and and subject to the the law and uh, what you're supposed to be doing in the family and the church and beyond. Uh, They are enabled and instructed to be godly men, godly women. Just as you are the image of God and Christ restores you according to that image, to be that image, so in a similar way, you are men and women that didn't get destroyed by sin as much as one might rebel against it. But Christ restores your conformity to those identities in a way that is good and pleasing to God. So a few points of application here at the end. As those who fall short of God's design and order and law, hold fast to Jesus Christ. Not here merely to say, you need to be good. Do what's right. Stop doing what's wrong. That's part of the message. But also as those who are forgiven, uh, who hold fast to Jesus Christ, and both for forgiveness as well as the ability now to therefore more and more conform to God's design. You have spurned the authority and maker, authority and wisdom of your maker, but yet he holds out salvation to you. Second, this is not only for yourself. Make Christ known to a world that is rebellious and lost and suffering. He is their only hope of uh, reconciliation and peace. Do you want to see them return to the ways of your Creator? Then lead them to Jesus Christ. Do you want them to abandon their confusion, to abandon their depravity, to abandon their rebellion? Then lead them to Jesus Christ. He is the one who restores humanity from its fallen condition and saves them from those ways of death. And third, display the Christ display the grace of Christ 
before the world, the transforming grace of Christ at work. Together, as a people, let your light shine in a dark and confused world. Show what humanity looks like when it's being transformed by the grace of God. Not only do you have to convince them that it's, that it's right, but show them that it's good. Affirm your God-given identity. Demonstrate the beauty and goodness of his design in your life as you're renewed by his grace, fulfilling that purpose and delighting in it. God's design is good and wise and glorious, and it puts all evil distinctions to shame. You, you can trust in God's design to be good. Uh, that it will, as God said in Deuteronomy 4, if you observe this law, if you act according to my commandments, including Deuteronomy 22, you know, if you walk according to my commandments, it will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. Not if it's just here written on the page, but if you observe them, they will observe it and see that indeed this is a good God. What people is like this with laws so good? It's not enough merely to give lip service to God's order, but let its glory shine. Let God's order in the family and in the church and in society as an individual uh, be reflected in your own ways, in your actions, your words, your example. You must yourself be transformed. Manifest a godly masculinity, a godly femininity in a world that doesn't really, isn't excited about being godly or masculine or feminine, uh, the gender or the godliness. But show God's order through Christ's grace. So God created mankind in his image. He made mankind as male and female. This distinction is good. It's ingrained in your bodies. You should affirm and live according to this design, looking to your creator and maker, uh, seeking evermore to be in conformity with his will, appreciating the design that he has made and its wisdom and goodness and the grace that we have in Christ that we might return to it. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your design that you have made. We thank you for the creation that you spoke into existence, that even though we have sinned and rebelled against you, yet so much of the goodness of your creation remains. You provide for us. You give good things to all, to believers, even to unbelievers, can taste the goodness of what they have rejected. We pray that you would, through Jesus Christ, save the lost and build up your people in ever-increasing conformity to holiness, to righteousness, that your glory might shine in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.